As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us life according to your word and teach us your statutes. Make us understand the way of your precepts and we will meditate on your wondrous works. Strengthen us according to your word, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Joshua, chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 236 of most of our Pew Bibles. It's the sixth book of the Bible between Deuteronomy and Judges. And we want to read uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 27. If you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here. We've been considering a series through the book of Joshua, and we've come to Joshua chapter 10. We want to think about the first 27 verses together. This is a truly remarkable passage and a blessing from our God to hear it, so let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. As soon as as Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, the king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, the king of Lachish, and to Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man 
for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed, Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, Years ago, they made a a kind of epic movie chronicling the events of D-Day. I think John Wayne was in the movie. It was quite a long movie. Um, And the movie was called The Longest Day. It was about the D-Day invasion, The Longest Day. Um, And with all due respect to John Wayne and to uh, the events of D-Day on June 6, 1944, uh, that was not The Longest Day. Uh, This passage records the longest day ever, Um, a day that was supernaturally extended by the Lord to allow his people to win a great victory over these Amorite kings. Um, That day, God destroyed the enemies of his people just as he promised. Uh, The passage is a very simple one, and that's the very simple message. God destroyed the enemies of his people and fought for his people just as he promised he would, and this is a great victory of and a great story told with remarkable ways in which the Lord directly intervened on behalf of his people. And we'll think about some of those glorious ways in which the Lord directly intervened to give them the victory. But we want to think about this this story of victory, this story of victory that God had promised to his people and delivers here over their enemies. And we want to see how this story is told through important words. First we see a series of speeches that begin this text, and we want to think about those important words. And then we see the glorious works that the Lord does um, in saving and delivering his people. And then finally, the the eternal witness uh, that is left, and we want to think about that as well. So we want to see this story of victory told through important words, glorious works, and an eternal witness. Uh, There are a series of speeches that begin this passage, and these words are all important for us understanding how they, how they proceed and the events that unfold 
in this passage. The first set of words is really the plan of resistance that's, that's established by these five kings in the south part of Canaan. Uh, the words of the king of Jerusalem who wants to form a coalition of kings against Israel and against their allies. Um, he's seen this, what's been unfolding, and as has happened over and over again to the Canaanites, they are filled with fear about what's happening. Uh, the king of Jerusalem and what he says is motivated by a great fear of what's happened, of what's happened in Jericho, of what's happened in Ai, of what's happened to the Gibeonites. Um, it's, it's a cause for great concern, great fear. And this has been a recurring theme in the book of Joshua. The more people hear about what the Lord has done, the more afraid they are. Um, when we, we first encountered Rahab, she told us about how afraid the people of Jericho were because of what they'd heard God had done in Egypt and across the Jordan uh, to the kings on the other side of the Jordan. And then people begin to hear what God's done at Jericho, and then they hear about what God's done at Ai, and then they hear about how these great warrior cities of the Gibeonites have just turned tail and, and, and rolled over for the Israelites. And it's a cause of great fear, and the fear is culminating throughout this book. The more victories God people, God's people win, the more afraid the people become. Uh, strategically, Israel has now done what armies wanted to do in taking Canaan, sort of thrusting into the middle of the country and then having the choice of going from that central plateau either north or south. Invading armies often went this way. They kind of drove into the center of Canaan and then from there they could take their campaign south or north as they wanted. And Israel's done that. They've gained this great strategic advantage of driving a wedge between Canaan. And so this king who represents the southern kingdom... Uh, the, the places in the south, wants to try to organize this, this resistance because he's seen what they've done to Jericho and what they've done to Ai. Now, Ai is one of those little cities, but he says, you know, Gibeon was filled with fighting men. Those were warriors, and they capitulated. And if they're with Israel now, we have to do something. We have to do something before it's too late. And so he tries to put together this coalition out of fear and desperation to go fight against uh, the Gibeonites, to try to weaken the allies of the Israelites as soon as they can. And we see them begin their war um, in those first five verses. At the end of verse 5, they are all encamped against Gibeon, and they make war against it. So the, the passage begins with those important words, that plan of resistance, and that sparks from the Gibeonites a plea for assistance. Right? They, they see the danger, and even though they are a mighty, a mighty people, they know they can't resist this great allied army, and so they call out to Israel for help. Uh, they plead with Joshua to come and to save them, and the plea is pretty dire in verse 6. Uh, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Um, now we might say, now what, how is that, what does that mean? And Well, you know, if you relax your hand, you drop something. And so they're saying, you know, don't, don't now drop us. We're in your hand. Don't drop us in our hour of need. Come, come to us and, and rescue us because we can't stand against this force that has come to us. Um, all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. Um, all the armies of the south have come to fight against them, and they need the help from Israel. They're pleading for their covenant protection. You've entered into a covenant with us, um, even though we fooled you into entering into that covenant. Now please honor the terms of the covenant and come and rescue us. And, we, and we're told in verse 7 that Joshua immediately 
mobilizes to keep the covenant promises that Israel has sworn in the Lord's name to Gibeon. Um, and so we have this, this second set of important words that sets the stage for this passage, this plea for assistance. And then we have the most important words of the passage, which are God's proclamation of assurance that the, the battle will certainly be won by Israel and they don't need to be afraid no matter how many people are gathered against them. Uh, we have very importantly before Joshua moves out, the Lord assuring him um, that he will be given the victory. The important word that's given in what Gibeon said in verse 6, um, the answer God gives is that they will surely be delivered into their hands. In verse 8, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Uh, not a man of them shall stand before you. Uh, that's the wonderful assurance that the Lord gives to Joshua. And this is another one of those instances, even though we may not remember it because it's been a long time since we heard these words before. This is a repetition of what God had promised Joshua all the way at the beginning of this book. In Joshua 1 verse 5, the Lord had said to him, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Um, God had made that promise to Joshua already, and God now repeats that promise at a crucial moment. Right? It's one thing before you get involved in any kind of battle for the Lord to say, I will be with you wherever you have to go. Whatever battles you have to fight, I will be with you and no one will be able to stand against you. It's a little bit of a different thing to now be facing the five southern armies, all of the southern strength of Canaan now arrayed in battle and to maybe wonder whether how this battle will go. Um, this is the biggest military challenge that Israel has faced yet in the promised land. And it could be at this crucial moment that some of those promises might be forgotten. And how good our God is to come to his people and to assure them of his promise at that crucial moment. Uh, to renew that promise, to remind them of the promises that he has made that God has not forgotten. Uh, that Joshua might go into battle assured of what the Lord will do for him. I think it's a wonderful reminder to us that sometimes we, we sort of feel like we need something new. We need a kind of new reminder or something new from the Lord uh, that, the, that the old things are, are not enough, that we need you know, something new, something fresh, something vibrant. And I think what this passage reminds us is you know, sometimes what we just need is the old truth repeated to us in the crucial moment, a new application of the old truth uh, for the moment that faces us. I like one commentator pointed this out. He said, this is what God's people usually need. Not new truth, but old truth freshly applied to their current need. Um, I think that's true, isn't it? That sometimes we just, we lose sight of what God has said. We lose sight of what God has promised. We don't need something new. We just need a reminder of the old, the old truth uh, applied freshly in this crucial moment. Um, how often we know that's true for us. It's one thing to read God saying, I will be with you to the very end of the age. It's another thing to hear that promise repeated to us when we feel as if God is far from us, and when we don't feel that God is close, when we feel that we are in a spiritually dry place, to have the Lord's promise come and to remind us of that old truth. I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's easy to read in Matthew 11, Jesus saying, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But how much more that old truth needs to be reapplied to us when we are in a particular patch of weariness. 
when we are in a particular patch of sinfulness, when we're in a particular time of difficulty, to hear that old truth repeated to us by our gracious God. To know that Christ is still saying, come to me, you who are weary and are heavy laden. And he's still saying to us, if you're in that condition, you can come to me and find rest for your soul. Sometimes that's what God's people need, not something new, but the old truth reapplied for our current need. And how wonderful that the Lord gives that to Joshua. I promised you that no one would stand against you. I meant it when I said it before you entered the promised land, and it still holds even though five kingdoms of the south are arrayed against you. It's still the truth that no one will be able to stand against you. You can go up with confidence, for I'm surely delivered them into your hand. And Joshua goes. He goes in in the strength of that promise. And with those words in mind, Israel goes out to meet this first serious attempt of resistance on the part of Canaan. And it becomes an, an opportunity for the Lord to show forth his power and his faithfulness to his people. And so these important words then lead to the glorious works we see God do as this battle is joined and God fights for his people. Uh, One commentator said the whole thrust of this passage is to emphasize the truth that God gives and Israel takes. Uh, God gives the victory and everything that Israel takes, they take because God has given it to them. God works gloriously in all of this. Uh, The first thing we see the Lord doing gloriously is this divinely induced panic that hits the armies when the Israelites appear unexpectedly. Um, We have an expression, you know, to steal a march on someone uh, means to, you know, march when they're not expecting it and to be there quicker than you thought. Joshua literally steals a march on these five kings. He marches all night through and shows up before they expect that Israel can be engaged. Now, that might be a moment for most military commanders to be worried, but God uses it as an opportunity to strike them with a panic. Um, It throws them into a panic to see the Israelites suddenly arrive in this unexpected moment. And there's this divinely induced panic. A divine terror from the Lord grips his enemies. Now, we're not told how the Lord does this. Um, You know, this is one of those moments where we say, man, couldn't couldn't we get a better description of what happened here? How 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 does a whole army get panicked all at once? We don't know whether God used some kind of natural thing to panic them or some supernatural thing to panic them. But um, Calvin rightly saying, we don't really know what God did, but we do know that God is able to accomplish whatever he pleases by a mere nod. Um, God is able to do whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it. And however he did it, he panicked this army. Um, And especially in ancient warfare, a panicked army was one of the worst things that can happen. A panicked army just turns tail and runs with no care for its own defense. Um, It's it's what they said, the army is routed. Um, It's one of the worst things that can happen to an army where they just break into a retreat and start running. Um, And it's a particularly bad thing for them to have happen uh, because they are in a difficult place to run. It's hard to run straight down a steep hill. Now, we don't really know the geography of the battlefield as well, but we recognize that they are, they are on an ascent to Beth Horon. We read that. Um, maybe you all know your Bible geography, so you can all say, well, of course, the ascent to Beth Horon. Who doesn't know that? Um, but in case you don't know, it was a very steep ascent. 
So steep, in fact, they had to cut sort of stairs into the stone. Um, And so imagine an army being so freaked out it begins to run away, but the way it has to run is down these steep stairs. And so imagine you're part of this army. Everybody's spooked. Maybe nobody knows why we're all spooked, but we're running for our lives. And we're running for our lives as fast as we can down this really steep staircase cut into the rock. And while we're all in this divinely induced panic, suddenly we start getting hit with hailstones. Right? So the second glorious thing God does is this divinely directed hailstorm. Where all of a sudden the people who are trying their best to run down this steep hill, down this steep staircase, are all of a sudden getting pelted with giant hailstones that are killing them. Now, you know, maybe considering the circumstances, the hailstones kill them because they're not big hailstones, but when you're trying already to run down a steep staircase, getting hit by a hailstone maybe sends you down the cliff. But maybe these are stones big enough to kill them. But either way, the stones start killing them. Um, And they're not killing the Israelites who are chasing them. They're just killing Amorites. Um, And imagine how that would fill you with fear as well, to be being killed from above by the enemy that's chasing you and killed by hailstones that are coming down. But the hailstones are only hitting you and not your enemy. Um, These are divinely directed hailstones. These are Amorite seekers. They're just coming down and popping them off this hill. This is unlike anything you can fight. And other kinds of things you could think an army could deal with, but that's something an army can't deal with. There's no... There's no manual in the officer's manual telling you how to deal with hailstones that are coming down from heaven to kill just you. Uh, This is a miraculous thing that the Lord is doing for his people. So the Lord threw them into a panic, we read in verse 10, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more killed in the hail than were killed with the sword. Um, A remarkable thing that the Lord does fighting for his people. Um, But the final glory is the greatest in what the Lord does when he divinely lengthens the day at the response to the prayer of Joshua. Um, It's a remarkable thing that we read um, in verses 12, 13, and 14. That Joshua prays that the day would be lengthened so that they can continue the fight. Um, and the form of the prayer is an interesting one. It's, a, it's so filled with faith that Joshua thinks that he can order the son what to do. It's an interesting prayer, isn't it? The way he puts it. Son, stand still. Now, boys and girls, why don't you try that tomorrow? Go out, go outside and try to tell the sun to stay still and see if you can make it happen. Uh, come tell me next week if you do. I want to know. Um, but I've never tried to do it. I don't think it would work for me. Um, there's no, this is a unique thing that happened in the history of the world. And again, you can think, put yourself in the position of the Amorites. Usually, war could only last during the day. At night, it got very dark. There's really no way to wage war at dark. And so they've had a bad day. And they're thinking to themselves, well, you know, at least when the sun sets, this awful day will be over. And then imagine you're looking into the sky and the sun does not seem to be setting. And the day goes on. And the battle goes on. And you keep being destroyed 
all day long. And you're craving that night to finally come and bring an end, and it doesn't come for a whole day. The sun just stands still, and the day continues, and there's no darkness to cover you. There's no darkness to envelop you and protect you from this warfare that's being waged. Um, we're sort of impressed, we're, we're meant to be impressed and, and in awe of what the Lord does fighting for his people. Um, we're told specifically there has not been a day like it in the history of the world where the Lord fought for his people in this way. There's not been a day like this where he permitted someone to give orders to the creation on behalf of the Lord's people that he might fight for them. There's never been anything like this that would happen. I like that in candidacy exams, sometimes when we investigate men for ministry, sometimes people will go through a series of questions about the Bible and ask, did this really happen? They'll say, you know, did Balaam's donkey really talk? And they'll say, did the sun really stand still for this day? The sun really stood still. This really happened. There's not been a day like it in the history of the world. And this must have had an awesome effect. We're told that Joshua made this prayer in the sight of all of Israel. They hear him pray, we're told in verse 12, in the sight of all Israel. And the sun stopped in the middle of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has never been a day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for, for Israel. Just think of how in awe of Joshua Israel must have been. Here is someone who has the ear of the Lord. That when he prays, the Lord listens. And the Lord is willing to give him even what he asks for when he asks for the sun to stand still. Um, when he orders the sun to stand still, it's at God's direction. It does what it's told. You can almost imagine if we personified the sun, saying, why should, I do what I, why should I do what you tell me to do? And God's saying, stand still. Okay, if you say so. Right, this is a, a tremendous moment. Think of what this must have done for Israel. This is our commander. He can tell the sun and the moon what to do. If he can do that, what can't he do? If God will do that for him, what will God not do for his people? Now think of the encouragement this should have brought to the people of Israel and just think how terrible it must have been for the Amorites, that day of destruction that would not end. Now that day of destruction where night would never come um, and there's only darkness for the kings who flee into the cave. Um, these five kings who were so sure they could resist God's people, so sure they could go to war, now we find them running into a cave for cover. And Joshua says, you know, we don't have time to deal with them. We've got the whole army on, on the run. Just seal up the cave with a rock, set a guard there, and then let's all keep pursuing these Amorites, and destroy them. Uh, the war sweeps by them so fast they just get locked up waiting for Joshua to come back and to deal with them. Um, this is a wonderful witness to the glory of what God does fighting for his people. It should be an eternal reminder to us that we have a God who fights for his people. Um, we don't see these same glorious kinds of things happening in our day, we're not called to the same kind of warfare that they were called to. Ours is a spiritual warfare. But it's the same God. It's the same power. 
It's the same love for his people that existed then that exists now. Um, And so we should be encouraged to think about how God fights gloriously for his people. And this leaves an eternal witness to us of God's saving purposes for his people. That's where the passage really ends with an eternal witness for the people of God. When Israel is done dealing with the armies and the shattered remnant of the few survivors have escaped to their wall cities, Joshua returns to deal with the five kings who are locked up in their cave. And the story somewhat builds the tension of what is Joshua now going to do with these five kings. So they roll the stone away, and the names of the king, the names of their kingdoms are repeated. Uh, that has two purposes: one to build the tension in the story. The Holy Spirit is an artist when he tells stories, and it builds the tension to have all these names repeated. What's going to happen to them? But it has another important purpose as well, which is to remind us: here they were these powerful commanders of great armies. And now they're alone. And their armies are destroyed. And all their power is gone. And they are now completely under the power of Joshua and the people of Israel. Everything they thought they had, all the power they thought they wielded is gone. And here they are now powerless at uh, Joshua's beck and call defeated, humiliated, alone, dragged out of their hiding place and thrown down at his feet. Um, And Joshua then commands his army commanders to come and to put their feet on the necks of their enemies. He has an important purpose in all of this. He makes that purpose clear in verse 25. Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Here they are, these five powers, utterly reduced by the hand of the Lord. And this is to be a reminder to the generations that follow Joshua. This is what the Lord does to those who fight against him. This is what the Lord does to all those who would come against the living God and his people. There's no reason to be afraid. There's no reason to be dismayed. They may command armies and the Lord will tear them down. Uh, They may be a fearsome sight in the face of mankind. They are as nothing before the Lord. There is nothing before the Lord that ought to be feared. The Lord is to be feared. Um, That's where the power is. Um. I remember seeing an interview once with General Mattis. You know, they called Mad Dog Mattis, who was in charge of the Marines. And somebody asked, this reporter asked him, what keeps you up at night? And he said, nothing. Immediately he said, nothing. I keep other people up at night. Um, Now, that's the kind of attitude you want in a general. Um, That's the kind of attitude you want in a warrior. I'm not afraid of them. They should be afraid of me, right? But when God says it, it's not braggadocious, not boastful, it's reality. And that's what Joshua wants God's people to understand. There's nothing to be afraid of in this world. There is no power in this world that ought to be feared in the face of the power of our God. Um, That's a message the church needs to hear in every age. Because people can be so twisted up to be afraid of what's going on in the world. 
And we should, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be engaged. But the church should always look at whatever the wickedness in the world that's arrayed against it and say, you know, at the end of the day, there's no cause for being afraid. There's no reason to be afraid. Because the Lord fights for his people. The Lord has promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, and the Lord is faithful to his promise. And so as a witness to what the Lord has promised to do and as a witness to uh, what these kings have, have earned by their uh, resistance, he, Joshua kills them all. He crucifies their corpses, displaying them according to the law as accursed by the Lord. And at sundown, in keeping with God's law, he takes them down and throws their corpses into the cave and heaps up rocks as a memorial. And we're told at this time of the writing of this book, you can still go and see that rock today. And you can still see the cave. And you can still look and say, that's the cave in which lie the five kings who thought they could resist the living God. Um, the point is very clear. We're to trust in the Lord. We're to trust in his power. We're to trust in his promises no matter what we face in this world. You cannot defeat a people when the Lord fights for them. And who is the Lord who fought for Israel? Well, he's the same Lord we know, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been the one who's always fought for the people of God. Um, he is the commander of the Lord's army. We thought about that a little bit this morning. Um, and he is a fearsome fighter for God's people. Um, Christmas is always a reminder of Jesus coming in his, as a suffering servant. Um, Jesus, meek and mild, to suffer and die for his people. He did that because that's what his people needed. That's the fight he had to fight at that time for his people. The fight against sin and death and hell to set us free from that. But we should never forget that Jesus is meek and mild to his own. He's gentle and lowly and eager to be found by those who earnestly seek him. He's gentle to his own, but he's ferocious for those who belong to him. He is a warrior king, and he fights for his people. Um, one commentator said this, it is, too bad, it is too bad much of the church has lost this vision of God or Christ as the warrior who fights for his people. It does not fit our sentimental graven images of what God ought to be like. The popular image of Jesus is that he is not only kind and tender, but also soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. Such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. We need to learn the catechism of Psalm 24, verse 8. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. We must catch the vision of the faithful and true sitting on the white horse, the one who judges and makes war in righteousness. No mild God or soft Jesus can give his people hope. It is only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have hope of triumphing in the muck of life. Um, Jesus is a, is a warrior who fights for his people. Um, he's up to the task of fighting whatever we face in this world. 
Um, and so when we sing songs that he's the infant lowly and infant holy, that's true. Um, and we never find him with a harsh word or a harsh action for any sinner who comes earnestly seeking him. Um, but he is a rock against which the armies of this world will break when they come against him. Um, he is not to be opposed. And how good it is for God's people to remi- be reminded this is the kind of king we have who fights for us, who defends us and preserves us in the salvation he's won for us um, and will never fail his people. You know, it's hard to read this passage and hear what happened to those five kings and not sort of see that that was sort of Satan's hope for Jesus, that he would be crushed and crucified, thrown in a hole, you'd roll a stone over it, and that would be the end, the memorial. This is the king of Israel. Um, But of course, Jesus suffered himself to die for our sins, was willing to give up his life as the one who had authority over it. He laid it down and then he took it up again. And his servants rolled the stone away for him and he walked out triumphant. And not triumphant over Amorite kings, forces far greater, death, the devil, hell, sin, the wrath of God. He endured and triumphed. And he has triumphed over those sins and nailed those enemies to the cross as a public spectacle, having triumphed over them for us. There's a sense in which that the Lord Jesus has the church come over and say, put your feet on their necks. I think that's too much. Um, Paul tells the Roman church that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The victory has been won by the Lord. And he wants us to be look at his cross and say, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. The Lord fights for his people. Um, he is our hope in every generation. And one day soon he will return in glory. And he will deal the final death blow to death and to hell and to the devil. And he will bring his people to glory. Until that day, he continues to tell us that old truth applied again and again to the crucial moment. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Be strong. Be courageous. For I am the first and the last and the living one. And I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. That's the Lord we serve. So to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us as we wait for you, that you would be our arm every morning and our salvation in the time of trouble, that at the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. And your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, as locusts leap, it is leapt upon. Christ our Lord, you are exalted, for you dwell on high, and you will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and you will be the stability of our times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, knowledge, for the fear of the Lord Jesus Christ is our treasure. And when he comes again in glory, Father, to crush Satan under our feet, we know our eyes will then behold the king in his beauty. And we'll see his land that stretches far 
We will look and say, Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. And our eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord Jesus in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams. For Christ is our judge, and Christ is our lawgiver. Christ is our king, and he will save us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.